Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Everything Cooperative this wonderful Thursday morning. And we're here. We're excited about being here awake and ready to talk about cooperation. You know, we give you the definition of co-ops as any business. Any business that you could think of could be a cooperative. If the co-op is owned by the employees, it's called a worker co-op. And if the cooperative is owned by the people that uses the products or services, it's called a consumer co-op, which are the two larger ones. There's also marketing co-ops and purchasing co-ops and quite a few other ones, but those are the two main ones. And we've talked to you a lot on this program for the last year and a half about how to start a co-op. And today we have Mr. Jim Johnson on the phone with us this morning. They're going to talk about how to establish a worker co-op. Good morning, Jim. Good morning, Vernon. Thanks for having me on. Oh, thanks for taking out the time to be with us this morning. I'm excited to have this conversation with you today to talk about the steps that companies can make to transfer transition their business from a uh, probably an incorporated or LLC to a co-op or how people can start their own co-op. So why don't we start by just saying, how did you get started into this work? Well, I go back to the 70s. I'm actually that old. And I got involved in a local food co-op that was starting up in my local town and just started volunteering. And it was hard to find good, clean food back in the 70s, and people had to band together to form consumer food cooperatives in order to get the food they needed to be healthy. And so I started volunteering at my local startup food co-op, and they quickly recruited me onto the steering committee. So I got involved in the nuts and bolts of governance right away, even though I was just 18, 19 years old. So that quickly, through that co-op, I met some other people uh, in the Washington, D.C. area, actually, that were involved in other types of grassroots economics efforts. And Jim, what was the small town you were from? This was Annapolis, Maryland, uh, just a little bit east of D.C. Okay, so most people around this area would know Annapolis. And so you were growing up in Annapolis, 18 years old, and you started working and volunteering for a startup food co-op. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Yes. Okay. Yeah, and once I had uh, relocated to D.C. and was involved in some other types of grassroots efforts along the same lines, I got into a study group of people, and one of them suggested we study the Mondragon cooperatives in Spain. And this was in the early 80s. The, the BBC had just published an interesting video about it, and we watched that video, and it was uh, remarkable, very revealing at the time that uh, the, this region in Spain could have you know, over 100 worker cooperatives and essentially having an entire regional economy that was based on workers owning and running their own businesses democratically. It was a real revelation to see that it was not just possible, actually happening right now. So you learned about Monagon in, in the 70s. I only heard about it about five years ago. And it is fascinating when you think about it in the, in the downturn of the 07, 08, one of the things I heard about there was that when a co-op uh, stopped existing, the other co-ops in the area t 
took those employees on so nobody lost their jobs. So they, they worked together to make sure that people didn't lose their jobs, which is absolutely yeah, it, fascinating. That was a, a remarkable event, actually, that they all voted. They all voted to all take a, a 20% reduction in their hours and in their pay so nobody lost their jobs. Exactly. A real show of solidarity amongst worker owners. How many employees are in in this in these companies in Spain right now, in this region? Montagon, Spain? Mondragon, yes, in, uh, in the Basque region of northern Spain. Um, my my recollection is there's about 120 worker cooperatives employing around 80,000 people. They've expanded and diversified a little bit, so it may vary a little depending on how you crunch the numbers. They had uh, they bought into a grocery chain uh, not so long ago, a few years back, and they're looking to convert that as well. And they've been opening factories in other countries as well. So it depends a little on how you crunch the numbers. I think it's around 80,000. 80,000 employees and cooperatives. Well, we may start a little bit smaller here. Cause they, <laughs> I assume they started smaller right after World War II, I understand, because they didn't have work. And so they consolidated and started cooperatives, and they've just grown and worked together. And, and they u- really use the, I think it's the sixth principle of cooperatives, and that's cooperation among cooperatives. They have 120 different cooperatives, and they work together for the economics of that community. Okay. It, it, it is a remarkable it is a remarkable experiment. They did start with just five machinists in the 50s who were following the teachings of a, of a Catholic priest who was inspired to encourage them in the, in the aspects of workplace democracy. And so it is inspiring to those of us in the U.S. here who are starting off small that in the 1950s, that first co-op in Mondragon started with just five people. And so it shows what's possible in terms of growth as well. One useful thing to realize is one of the first things they did once they'd started their first worker cooperative and and once they had uh, become successful, they started a bank. They realized that was one of the most important things they could do. They started their own bank, and the mission of that bank is to start more worker cooperatives. So it shows how powerful it can be when you when you realize that you need to invest in yourself and have your own financial institutions that are there to serve your needs. Was that bank sim- similar to a credit union where the people that, that put money into the credit union, put deposits in, are the members and they own the credit union and they vote for the um, directors and so forth, the board of directors. Was their bank more like a credit union was owned by the individuals? That's my understanding. There's people who are more well-versed in this than I am, but my understanding is that it functions essentially a lot like a credit union. They do refer to it as a bank. And I believe that it's the worker cooperatives themselves that have a lot of clout in it, um, perhaps more so than individual depositors. The bank, as I understand it, was set up specifically to benefit and, and to create worker cooperatives. Uh, whereas the credit unions that we see in the United States here many times are, are more function on the individual to help foster the economic independence of individuals. And in fact, I was uh, in a recent discussion with people from credit unions in the United States here, and, and it was talking to them about what are the obstacles of credit unions in the United States lending to cooperatives, especially worker cooperatives. And um, one subject that came up again and again was that in the United States, the mission of so many credit unions is to serve individuals, to help empower individuals, not businesses and not even cooperatives. So a lot of it depends on the mission of of the credit union. And that may represent a lot of the differences between the credit unions we see in the U.S. here versus, for example, the bank in Mondragon. 
Okay, well, that's great information to know. Thank you very much. I didn't know we were going to be talking about Mondragon or credit unions today. I thought we were going to be talking about worker cooperatives, but it seemed like they all work together. <laughs> You're talking about creating co-ops. You have to still have the capital. Worker cooperatives have, still have to have capital in order to form and sometimes to grow. So it is a conversation that needs to happen at all times. So you guys started at 18 years old, and then where did you go from there? There was uh, a lot of a lot of things in D.C. to keep me busy during the 80s in terms of grassroots organizing and, and alternative economics. There was a, a lot of people don't know if there was an alternative energy movement back in those days, and solar power and methane and renewable resources. I was active in a number of those groups. But by the time I got it to the mid-90s or so, it, uh, I, it became clear to me that that uh, what in those days we were calling triple bottom line business or alternative economics was definitely what we needed in order to have a sustainable situa- uh, civilization. And so triple bottom line business being social sustainability, environmental sustainability, as well as financial sustainability. And once, uh, once I started learning more about that, it was clear to me that it was time for me to devote as much of my time as I could solely to cooperatives. Um, I was uh, raised in a small family business and have been a freelancer uh, in the computer industry mostly through all of the 80s and into the 90s. So I was familiar with small business and microenterprise and the whole, many of the mechanisms of small business. And so when I decided to focus exclusively on cooperatives around 1995, I was able to bring that experience to the table. And so, once again, in 95, I became involved with my local food co-op, the Tacoma Park Silver Spring Food Co-op here in the D.C. area, and brought my IT skills to the co-op and my organizing experience. And that co-op was in the process of pulling off a major expansion right at that time. And for those of us who are familiar with that co-op, it it relocated into the heart of its market in Tacoma Park in 1998. And it was a, a major expansion, a huge project, and the National Cooperative Bank actually was a key uh, player and key supporter in that effort. So that got me very, very deeply into the food co-op movement and, importantly, into networking with food co-ops. And through those activities, I connected with my work co-op, with the company that became my work co-op. In 1999, I joined that company, and it was a small software company. They were Jim, to, be, before you move on, can you tell yeah. the audience how they, if they wanted to go to a grocery co-op, how they could, or food co-op, how they could get a hold to the Silver Spring Co-op, food co-op? You know, the the, uh, Tacoma Park Silver Spring Food Co-op is right in the heart of Tacoma Park, and you can uh, go to their website, tpss.coop, that's tpss.coop, and their phone number is 301-891-2667. Your listeners might also be interested in knowing that that co-op is now preparing to do another major expansion, and uh, I guess it's been about 17 years in its current location, and it's bursting at the seams again, and it's a a great place to buy natural food and uh, and get some good community as well. Okay, I need you to do that number again because I, I had a hard time writing down. Oh, certainly. The phone number there is 301-891-2667. Got it. And that's Tacoma Park Silver Spring Food Co-op and on the web there at tpss.coop. T-P-S-S, Tacoma Park mm-hmm. Silver Springs.coop. Okay. Yes, exactly. And so they're, they're probably the largest food co-op that we have right here in the D.C. area. There are some smaller ones. There's Glut in Mount Rainier, which is actually a worker co-op and uh, has been going since 1969. And they're also a co-op that's worth noting and worth supporting. Mount Rainier, Maryland. 
It's a food co-op that's owned by the workers. Uh, that's correct. That's okay. exactly right. And then there's one in Greenbelt. That's correct. The Greenbelt Food Cooperative in Greenbelt, Maryland. Uh, they're a consumer food co-op uh, owned and governed by the local people there in the neighborhood. And they've also been around for a long time. Mostly more of a conventional grocery store, but also a great place to get you know, reasonably priced food in good community. And I had somebody from Greenbelt on the show uh, some time ago. And they said in the summer they, they have a um, it's like a farmer's market out there, too, to get, mm-hmm. get, get fresh vegetables and stuff. Greenbelt's a terrific town. There's several co-ops in Greenbelt. You've probably already covered that in the story, but Greenbelt is a remarkable experiment in cooperative community. It's worth studying. Yeah, the Greenbelt Homes has a favorite piece that I looked on their wall that says that cooperatives give people the tools they need to control their destiny. And, yeah. and Greenbelt Homes is a 1600 uh, housing unit housing cooperative. What was uh, created in what was that the 30s and the 40s? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah. it's a great experiment. They have seven co-ops and they have an incubator for two or three more cooperatives that's on the road. You know, uh, Jim, we've got to take a break right now. And so if anybody out there would like to call in, if you have a question or a comment to Jim or myself, please call in at one 800 450 We'll be right back. 1450 WOL. Information is power, and that's the reason that the National Corporate Bank is sponsoring this program and why WOL is such a great partner in um, producing and presenting this this program, giving you the information you need to start a worker co-op or start any other co-op, or you may find on here some places you can go shop, like we've just talked about the food cooperatives in the area, or you might want to look for a housing cooperative to buy into, to purchase into, because there's a lot of benefits of cooperation and the reason that the National Cooperative Bank is sponsoring this program. Now, Jim just told us that he heard about cooperatives at the age of 18 in the 70s, and unfortunately, Jim, I didn't hear about co-ops until I was around 50. About about 18 years ago, I heard about co-ops, and I had fallen in love with this model for a lot of good reasons, and that's the benefits of co-ops, and we'll get into some of those as we go forward. But as we were going through your life history, we were at the point where you were at the Silver Spring Co-op working, and I stopped you so you could tell people how to go, how to find out about that. So why don't you keep on your journey to where you are now in helping to create uh, worker co-ops? Sure. Yeah. So, yeah, I was up to my ears in food co-ops as an IT consultant and uh, helping with the expansion of this local food co-op. And I attracted the attention of a a local software company, a small local software company um, that needed some assistance and was had a good democratic culture. And that's actually one of the first things you want to look at if you're looking at converting a conventional business to a worker cooperative is what kind of internal culture do you have? And they had a relatively enlightened founder who, you know, really didn't want to be a boss and didn't want to have a boss, just wanted to have a company where everybody worked as a team, had a lot of equality. And so he had created a culture within his small company that was already very participatory. And so when they uh, wanted to take me on as a partner, I was like, that's fine. Give me equal ownership and I'll, you know, devote myself to your company. And, And so that's what we did. And uh, we started talking about what kind of company they wanted to be in the future strategically. And they had never heard of worker cooperatives, but they had uh, already had a, through natural instinct, had been formed a somewhat of a democratic 
participatory culture. So I started talking to them about Mondragon and other worker cooperatives, and and they were experiencing a business of, uh, and they were experiencing a moment of significant growth at the time. They had a software product that was getting a lot of demand, and they were hiring. And so we were juggling increased customer demand and and the growth of the business with actually converting the business to a worker cooperative all at the same time. So it took us a while, but we went through the uh, we went through the procedures and we found some model bylaws that supported cooperatives that worked this worked with us, the ICA group in Boston. And we just went through all those really important governance questions about, you know, how do you make big important decisions in your business? And we, we walked through them together one question at a time and eventually figured out how it was we wanted to operate in a more formal democratic fashion with regular members meeting and profit sharing and voting on all the big issues. So that took us a while, but we did eventually convert to a worker cooperative, and I stayed there for a good 10 years. And like a lot of software companies, we found our niche, and we were very prosperous for quite some time. You know, Jim, I'd like to stop you a minute there and and just Mm -hmm. tell the audience here that uh, my small business, which is a property management business, how I got to know Jim was that I wanted to turn it into a worker cooperative. And as the owner, now the the thing I wanted, that says you just talked about this co-op, you found yourself working in this IT co-op, software co-op. I really, I've found out that we did not have a culture of democracy and centralized decision-making. And it's been hard for the group of employees and myself to get there. We've been grappling with this now for about oh, a year, a good year, of how to get these decision-making, this culture in place. So we didn't have that, and therefore it's taken us a lot longer to try to get this transition going. And I just want to tell people, because I like to talk about that a little bit today too, the things that I'm learning about this worker cooperative and decision-making, that it's not as easy, this democratic control is not as easy as I first thought it would be. Uh, to get everybody into making it work. And I want to thank you publicly and as I have privately for your assisting us in this transition. And so we can talk about your experience with your software company and your experience with other companies either starting worker co-ops or this transition phase is the whole thing I wanted to do in the next 35 minutes or so that we have left on this program. So you can keep going and we'll come back to some of these, these issues. Well, you're welcome, and thank you for that. I'm, I'm very happy to help. It is, it is a passion of mine. Uh, it's, it's really thrilling work, and you've touched on some really key issues there about converting a conventional company to a worker cooperative. I think a key part of, of our trajectory, one thing that really helped myself as well as helped our company, was after a few years when we'd done our bylaws and we were sort of stabilizing in our new democratic structure was that um, – I went for Principle 6, Cooperative Principle 6, Cooperative Helping Cooperatives, and started reaching out to other worker cooperatives. It started with something as simple as, you know, we needed to find an attorney who was familiar with cooperatives to help us with our business. And I had trouble finding one, so I started contacting other worker cooperatives and worker cooperative advocacy organizations. And eventually that led me to the Eastern Conference for Workplace Democracy, for for anyone who's interested in starting a worker cooperative or strengthening a worker cooperative. Uh, the Eastern Conference for Workplace Democracy is a critical resource. Um, you can find them at east.usworker.coop on the web, east.usworker.coop. So I went there that year. That was 2005, and there was a whole track at the conference about starting a worker cooperative, all the basics, 
lots of worker cooperatives and worker cooperative advocates were represented there. So one of the most critical things anybody can do is start networking, find those online resources, find those other worker cooperatives and those allies, and listen to what they tell you and gather those studying materials and study, study, study. As you're finding, there's a lot of education and a lot of study that's required because our mainstream culture does not prepare us to share power democratically in our workplace. It simply doesn't tell us how to do that. And so we have to learn how, whether we're 50 or whether we're 18, we have to learn how to share power democratically. And it can be done, and it is being done. I mean, examples like Mondragon show us how well it can work and that it can work better than what we're doing now. But there is a lot of learning and a lot of study involved and a lot of growing and changing and adapting. Let me, let me add a couple of things, if I could, Jim, yeah. is that in that quote that I talked about at the Greenbelt Homes, that uh, co-ops give people the tools to control their destiny, the tools that they're talking about is the education. Yeah. Once you get the education, you get the knowledge to run a worker co-op or to how to democratically control a housing co-op or credit union or food co-op. All of these also help you to learn how to run your household, and several people have talked about that the particular finances of it are also how democratically you can work with your spouse, significant other, uh, as you're going through and doing things. So this, the, the knowledge that you learn, but it does take knowledge. And the other reason I like worker co-ops and so compassionate about it is this knowledge. And I've taught 12 years of my life, and i found that a lot of times in the classroom, when, when the students cannot see how they can use the knowledge, it makes it hard for them to learn it. It makes it hard for them being, to be enthusiastic about it. But when you are wanting to form a cooperative or a business and you can see how the knowledge that you are learning, how it can, it can benefit you like day one, it's nothing that's going to be five, ten years down the road. You can use this information right away. Then I find that people are very much excited about learning and they will do the study. They'll do what it takes. And I got one other point. And when you talk about going to East, the Eastern U.S. Worker Conferences, that's east.usworker.coop on the web. I have found whether it's worker co-op conventions, any convention with workers, with cooperators, they are willing to share. they like, you want to know something? Here it is. There's no sort of holding on to the knowledge like, oh, you're, competitive, you're going to compete against me, and I know if I keep this knowledge, you can't be successful, which you find too often in the capitalistic model. They want to hold their secrets, but in the worker cooperative model, in the cooperative model, people give the information, share it, let's move, let's go. How can we help you be successful? Yes, it's, it's remarkable. And, and one of the most amazing things about being part of the co-op community is precisely that. Again and again, I found myself in a room of people at a workshop at a conference where I went there looking for information, and the room was filled with people who knew more than I did and who were happy to share that information and who saw my participation as part of the co-op ethic. It's wonderful. I would argue that our worker co-op probably would never have happened. And so um, it's, uh, you, you touched on something else I want to make sure people realize, and that's about the culture. And, you know, culture, organizational cultures are so important, and yet if you realize that you want to evolve a culture or change an organizational culture, it, it really takes a lot of commitment. It takes a lot of work. And people have to really buy in. And, and that's where the vision and the mission of the co-op is really, really important. You know, if people can get a clear sense of where they want to go together, then that really is, is 
the magic sauce, really, the secret sauce about getting the people to work together to get there. Because you say once they all set that goal together, and that if you if you're trying to strengthen a culture or change a culture from something that's you know more of an employee-minded boss employee culture to something that's more participatory, like a work over getting people on board with that vision is absolutely critical. You know, um, uh, we have to take another break, and we have Gwen online. We'll get her question and comment when we come back. But we really want to come. I really want to talk to you more about changing the culture and how you get that done and setting the goals so everybody's on board. Because that's the hardest part I'm finding and what we're having to do. But we'll be right back. Jim, thank you so much for all that you're teaching me and all and your commitment and passion. 1450 WOL. You know, everybody, I'm so glad that you're listening in, uh, talking about cooperatives, the benefits of co-ops. The National Cooperative Bank is sponsoring this program whose mission is to help cooperatives grow by supporting and being an advocate for America's cooperatives and their members, placing special emphasis on serving the needs of communities that are economically challenged. And we have Jim Johnson on the line with us this morning, and he's been telling us about how you start up a worker co-op and his how he got into this cooperative movement starting at 18 years old. And the National Cooperative Bank, when he was working with an advocate for the Tacoma Park Silver Springs Food Cooperative, and they were growing, that NCB helped with loans. And that's what they're there for. But they're also there to help economically challenged uh, communities, which most minority communities, brown and or black, uh, yellow, pink, or green, that most communities uh, are economically challenged. So this is why I also like cooperatives and the mission of NCB. But Gwen was on the line. Uh, Gwen, did you have a question or comment? Yes. I hope you both, guests and hosts, are well and happy. And I'd just like to know if the Cooperative Extension Service Program from years and years and years ago has anything to do with the now existing co-ops that exist. Jim, do you know about the Cooperative Extension Program? I do not. I know a little bit about it, and I believe that, my, in fact, Cooperative Extension Programs, which are uh, typically based out of universities, um, are, I believe, the word, the way they use cooperative relates to the university cooperating with other entities within the community. But as it turns out, especially in rural areas, cooperative extension programs have actually engaged economic cooperatives and have, have promoted them. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Have been important forces for economic development and uh, sustainability within the communities where they operate. And so they're useful resources for sure. Do they still exist? Well, I can speak to that now. I know what the definition is. I taught at Howard University, and Howard had an extension program. I taught in the business school. And um, the students, what they would do is uh, some of the students would be in class for six months or a semester or so, and then they would work in a business outside in the community for a period of time. And so they could basically use the knowledge that they're learning in class out in, into that business. And that was what the cooperative program was at Howard. And as far as I know, it's still going on. I haven't been there in several years, but the last time I tried to see if I could get a, a student in my business, it was still going on at Howard. Oh, good. I, I haven't heard of that for years, but they did provide uh, leadership training. And at the time, I remember them being located at the 4-H club. So 
It was sort of like farming and other entities that had to do with teaching youngsters. And I guess old people as well, whoever <laughs> needed that. But that was a good program, and I, I like the idea of the co-op. I think I'm going to try to get something going. Please do, and, and, and reach out to east.uscoop, usworker.coop, to, and see if you can go to their convention and also learn uh, more about them. Okay. Thank you, Gwen. Thank you. Enjoy your day. Thank you. You too. Thank you. And Jim, can you talk a little bit more about that, particular with the, for my knowledge and others, the the, the connection between the 4-H and the rural uh, communities that you were talking about? Yeah, well, it's a substantial amount of the co-op movement in this country is actually in rural areas. And the USDA actually uh, puts out several million dollars in grants every year to co-op development efforts around the country. It's very important to keeping these small towns alive and these farming communities alive. And organizations like 4-H, local Grange Halls, um, local electric co-ops, which are mostly in rural areas, uh, rural cooperative development centers, uh, state USDA centers, they all work together to try to uh, keep the small town and family farm way of life going. And cooperatives, uh, agricultural cooperatives, are a huge part of that movement. Um, agricultural cooperatives will typically provide marketing and processing services to small farmers, and also they represent buying groups that help farmers uh, leverage their, their buying power to get a better deal for the uh, supplies that they need. Uh, so uh, you know that um, I believe it's 30%, one-third, I believe, of the produce in the United States moves through agricultural cooperatives. It's a remarkable figure, and most people, many people don't even know that these agricultural cooperatives exist. They're a huge part of the food system in this country, and if you're familiar with Lando Lakes or Florida Naturals or Ocean Spray, those are all agricultural cooperatives, and uh, they're a critical part of the economy in this country. Uh, so they're out there, and they're important. We've had the cabbage cheese or cabbage creamery is what it's called. I, I've only eaten their cheese and knew about them through their cabbage cheese. They've been on the program. And the Federation of Southern Cooperatives have been on several times. And the Federation of, of Southern Cooperatives have mainly been African-American cooperatives, uh, smaller in the southern states. I think there's nine states or so. Um, so they've been on. But the other one that's surprising to me was when you talk about the rural electric co-ops, that the rural electric co-ops, in the grid of, of of the electricity around in the U.S., they have 75% of the land mass in rural electric co-ops. And about 50% of the meters uh, are under rural electric co-ops. So they, and the other part about it, which I found interesting, is in southern Maryland, which is not rural anymore, they have a rural electric co-op. And in northern Virginia, they have a rural electric co-op. They were rural at one point, but they're not now. So some of the, the rural electric co-ops, they are in the urban areas that have become urban of suburbs of urban areas uh, through time. So they have they play a major role in the, the grid for electricity in the U.S., these co-ops. And most people, I didn't know that until they were on the program. We have somebody else, another call. Ronald, do you have a question or comment? Yes, I have a comment. Uh, I, I run a co-op, a purchasing cooperative, and I'm a regular listener. I've been trying to basically get your email address so I could send you some information on our cooperative here in Washington. So 
If you could provide that information, I'll, I'll be uh, and I'll take it off the air. Uh, uh, I'll give it to you deal. now. I've got two email addresses. The first one is v o v as in Victor, o as in Oscar at oaks o a k e s management dot com. That's been my main uh, email address. That's with the property management company. But we're opening up a, a web page, and this is the first time I've announced it. It's called everything.coop, and it should be up pretty quick. Uh, everything.coop is going to be a web page that talks about everybody that comes on this program, and people can get in and listen to the, uh, the past shows and so forth. And then that will be vo at everything.coop. Okay, vo at everything. Co-op. Dot co-op, yes. Okay, okay. V-O at everything dot co-op. Okay, thank you very much. Now, do you have the taxi co-op? Yeah, well, we have a purchasing cooperative, and we have a meeting on May 13th dealing with providing commercial lease options uh, for taxi cab and limousine companies who are interested in using commercial lease options to uh, put wheelchair accessible and hybrid vehicles in the taxi cab and limousine industry. But uh, it, we're not a taxi co-op. We're working in the transportation industry. Fantastic. And I'm hoping I can be at that hearing on May the 13th of May. If I'm in town, I will plan to be there because I would like to hear yeah. it. And I'd like to have you back on the program afterwards to see how you're working. Because as you explained it before in the show, I understand how why the uh, D.C. has made it so that a lot of hype, you have to have hybrids and you have to have wheelchair accessible. And I understand a lot of those kind of things, but I don't understand why they won't let the taxi cab drivers lease their vehicles. So that I don't, I like to understand more, but so we'll take it yeah. off air. And if you email me, we'll see what we can do to, to help out or at least where we can learn about I'm, what's going on. I'm get I'm getting out of my vehicle. So if you can give that once again, uh, we'll give it, uh, we'll give it to you off air then. So I can get back okay. to Jim. Thank you, Ron. Okay, thank you very much. All right. Mm -hmm. Yes, Jim. Fascinating. You know, I, I'll take it back to the theme. We're trying to make sure our listeners can uh, get some nuts and bolts about how to start a worker co-op and how to convert a company to a worker co-op. Mm -hmm. You can hear the theme here in the callers, and, and in what we're talking about is uh, what I like to tell the startup groups I work with is the key here is the need. It's the need that makes a co-op strong. When people who have a need get together and they commit themselves to working together to meet their common need, that is what makes a co-op strong. And it, it's almost the opposite of what you would tend to think intuitively. You think, I have a need. How does that make me strong? But, in fact, that's the key, and that's why we see cooperatives rising and getting stronger in times of economic hardship. And so uh, that that relates to worker cooperatives, really, and, and that vision and mission process that really needs to happen at the beginning. You know, and you, you touched on it already. One of the, the first step when a work when a traditional business is thinking about converting to a worker co-op, we start with determining the desire of the seller, and determining the desire of the buyer. Do we actually have a motivated seller who wants to sell the business and a motivated buyer, the workers who want to buy the business, and both of those processes typically involve the cooperative principle of education. Both the seller and the buyer will typically, both the potential seller and the potential buyer, will need to be educated about, you know, what does this really mean? What would be involved? Let's study other companies that have successfully converted to co-ops and what they had to go through. What are the principles that we've learned about it? And just like any transaction, but it really helps to set the tone there. Do we have a motivated seller and a motivated buyer? And, what, if you've, and after you've educated people, told them what the options are, and they've given a tentative yes,
seeing this, then you take a look at the book feasibility of the of the purchase. So you know, what's the future of the company look like? Can we project some future revenue and expenses so that the workers can get a sense of what what it would look like, how the numbers would crunch out in terms of actually buying the business. So that's the feasibility portion of of the process. There's a business valuation that also needs to happen so that the seller can be assured of getting a fair price and the buyers can be assured of getting a fair price. Uh, often we will recommend that the valuation be done by an outside third party so that we can get some number that's relatively objective and based on evidence. Business planning is a critical part of this. Many small businesses have done well without a, a business plan that is too formal, but in order to uh, help secure the buy-in and the assurance and the welfare of the workers, uh, typically we will encourage people to do a rigorous business planning process if they haven't done one already. At a critical point in the process, we will, you know, encourage the formation of a buyout committee, which typically will involve some of the workers and an agent of the seller, and that the critical thing about the buyout committee is it needs to have the trust of all parties, and that buyout committee is, is a critical part of sort of vetting the process, making sure all the necessary education gets done, a lot of the research, and in the end, it becomes a critical part of the negotiation, too. There's a lot of different things to negotiate in the sale of a business, not just money. Some of the issues we tackle and try to bring to light have to do with what the availability of the selling owner will be after the sale. You know, some owners have other matters they need to get on with, and they're not necessarily available to the co-op for consultations after. It's certainly much better if the, if the owner, after they sell the business, can be available on a consultative basis, ideally for a number of years as the workers are uh, sorting through the different aspects of, uh, of running the business and discovering the nuances, some of the complexities. So there's a number of other steps that go into the transition process. You know, Jim, I need to stop you again. We're going to have to take another break. We have a minute, but I want to go back through these. You said them very quickly, and it sounds like the, the first step is making sure you got a willing buyer and a willing seller, and mm -hmm. then in some feasibility a study, and then the second step uh, is evaluation of the business, and mm -hmm. then some business planning, mm -hmm. and then you need a buyout committee that has to negotiate a lot of things, and you have to have trust in that committee. And one of the things besides money you have to negotiate is the availability of the owner to help with the business as this co-op goes on. You know, I want to come back with the other steps and to maybe go back over these. We only have one more segment to go, Jim. The hour goes by very, very quickly. But we're taking our final break, and we'll be right back. Please do not touch that now. News updates on the web at WOLDCnews.com. Yes, information is power. And NCB's customers are cooperatives such as grocery, wholesale cooperatives, purchasing cooperatives, or housing cooperatives. Other customers of NCB share in the spirit of cooperation driven by democratic organizing principles. They may be Alaska or Native American enterprises, which by their very nature are member-run and member-owned. Others may be community health centers or charter schools driven by entirely by community needs, needs, needs. What they all have in common is a single fundamental principle that they have joined together cooperatively to meet personal, social, and or business needs. 
And we had a, a gentleman, Jim, on the program uh, called Papa Sin from Senegal. And he said if there was not a community need, there was no need for a cooperative. <laughs> and, I, and I remember that one, as, as you said it, if it, based on needs, and that gives it the, some strength that people will come together and work together to satisfy that need. And more often than not, that's the, that's the impetus, the, the enthusiasm, so that they will learn and get the knowledge to, to meet that need and forming a business to meet that need. But we were talking about the, the steps to form a worker cooperative, particularly in this transition stage, and you, we read about four different steps. What, what, what else are there? What are the other steps? Once, once we've got our buyout committee in place and it has the trust of all parties, we need to start scoping out what funding possibilities are. Sometimes the owner can finance the deal themselves, just like, an, just like a, a seller-financed mortgage in a lot of ways. But often there's additional loans that are needed. And certainly you want to position the organization so that even if it does get owner financing, it has the option of converting to traditional financing in the long run. So organizations like the National Cooperative Bank and other types of cooperative development funds can be essential in search for funding to help finance the work of buyout. You know, forging a relationship with an attorney who is knowledgeable and supportive of the process of the work of buyout is essential. And that, and that can be a little challenging in this area. Out in the Midwest and the West Coast, there are more attorneys that are familiar with this process. We might have to look hard to find an attorney who is knowledgeable and supportive of this worker buyout, cooperative worker buyout process. So funding search, co-op attorney, um, and planning for management. You know, the workers need to decide how they're going to run the business after the selling owner has left. And, um, and that's a critical part of the process. It doesn't have to be complicated, though. If there's a, already a good, well-functioning structure in place, and uh, the, you know the, there are employees who are you know form the heart of that organizational structure, then the founder you know that that structure may be able to remain largely intact as the founder moves on. Um, it really depends on the culture of the business and the organizational structure of the business, to what extent the business has been dependent upon the founder. That can be a significant transition. If, if the founder is the go-to person for everything, then uh, a, a business may need a significant amount of time to bring other workers up to speed, to learn everything that needs to be learned, to you know, transfer the relationships with clients and key partners. Um, so uh, putting a plan for management in place varies a lot with the organization, but it's absolutely critical. Then as all of this has been developed and all these plans, this is sort of like a master plan that you're creating or that you put into place what we like to call a roadmap, co-op conversion. After we've developed that and detailed that out and figured out how we want to do things, we're in a position where it's time to gain employee approval once again. The buyout committee needs to really look everything over now that there's a detailed plan and say, are we ready to pull the trigger on this? Is this really what we want to do? Is everybody really on board? And so that's a critical point, and there can be some more negotiating around that. Then you're really towards the end of the process at this point to implement the new structure and complete the transaction, and uh, whatever responsibilities have to be transferred to start transferring those responsibilities, paperwork that needs to be signed, actual transfer of assets. Is, uh, legally, there's a couple of ways to go with this. You can actually literally sell the company to the workers so that the, the company continues to be the same company with new ownership, or you can create a new company, and the 
the new company can buy the assets of the old company. Often we'll favor the latter strategy, where the workers create a new company and buy the assets of the old company so that anything that, you know, any old baggage that that previous company had can be left behind. And the new, co new company can start fresh with new workers and the clients and the assets that it buys from the owner. So in a vastly oversimplified fashion, those are the steps the rough steps of converting a traditional business to a work club. You know, it's, it's, it sounds relatively simple. I've I got 11 steps here, but um, as I listen to you talking, but I can see in, in the Oaks management transition several places that could be problematic. And one is that, and I did not know this until we started this process, that I've been the go-to guy. Uh, then I've tried to push decisions down and more often than not, they'll come back and ask me, what do you want to do? And um, so it's, it's trying to see if we can get that culture to where people will make decisions. And that's where we are right now, making a grid of all of the decisions with your help, giving us the grid. And, and we're making this grid that fits our company and then say who will make what decisions. And then see if we can't get people to understand that they can make decisions and get comfortable with it, that if they make the wrong decision, they're not going to get fired or something. It's just they learn from them. That's, that's what I had to do is you can make the decision with the best information you have. And it's sometimes the right decision. And sometimes this can be a pretty bad decision and <laughs> bad. It costs money or it hurts somebody. But if the people know that if they make the wrong decision, that they can learn from it. I used to call it tuition. You, know, you have to pay tuition <laughs> to go to college and you have to pay tuition to learn how to run a business. And that's the way it shows up. Sometimes the tuition is small and sometimes it can be in thousands of dollars. But um, so that's, that's yeah. one of the problems. And then the other one is a question for you is what happens if some of the employees at five, I think, right, five that we're having in this conversation in me, and that, what happens if one or two of them don't want to be in the co-op? Yeah, there's a number of ways to handle that. And one of the ways we help to ease that issue is we're trying to make sure everybody's well-educated and everybody really knows what they're getting into. And lots of times people will realize it's a good deal for them, but not everybody actually wants to be an worker owner, and that's a reality that we need to respect. And often what we'll see is employees who don't want to become worker owners will get grandfathered in lots of times. And the company will... So they keep their job. That means that they keep their job. Right. Okay. They keep their job, right. And they go forward and they, you know, they and the majority of the workers will become worker owners, but there might be one or two workers who don't wish to. And... They, essentially, they end up with a new boss, and the boss is, you know, a committee of their coworkers is becomes their boss. And uh, it's, you know, one of the main principles of a worker co-op is that any worker who is, you know, meeting the responsibilities of their job should have the option of becoming a worker owner. And it's like, and that's a critical part of it. We recognize people who are doing the work should have the option of being a worker owner. And so those are people who choose to become a worker owner later on. They could, you know, play out their employment at that organization without becoming a worker owner if, you know, if that's the agreement that gets struck between all parties. Um, sometimes we'll see that the, the new worker owners really want every, it's very seriously want every, every worker to be a worker owner. They want that advantage, the cooperative advantage of having every worker thinking like an owner. They might then negotiate a generous severance package and a transition period even of a year or two where they help the person find work somewhere else if they really don't want to be in a worker co-op. Some worker co-ops choose to be exclusive. 
they don't want to have non-owning workers, but there's other worker co-ops that do allow that. So it's it's something to be negotiated. There's a lot of different options, but it's important that we value workers even if they don't want to become owners. And so it's one of the things that makes this a, a process of negotiation. Negotiation and respect for everybody's opinion. Again, that's why I like cooperative. They everybody has a say. Some people don't know they have a say, and they have to learn that they do, and then how, how to articulate wherever they are. And again, if when I worked for Ford at 18 years old in the foundry, I had no say except that I had to be at work on time <laughs> and I had to do my work. Okay, yeah. so that was the only say that I had. But in terms of how that foundry worked or how Ford factory worked, I had absolutely no say in it. So again, I like this a lot for for my personality, but for some others that may not want to, I would like to respect their view too. So I like those two options. It touches on something that you mentioned before, which is that if you can get people into that cooperative ownership mentality, you know, where they realize they have power, where they do have a say, where they learn, where they, they pay the tuition and they learn how to use their voice, the benefits are enormous. You know, the benefits to the people who personally are enormous if they can make that leap. Typically, owners of cooperatives, especially worker owners in a workplace democracy, they develop a greater sense of self-determination in their life in general, and they develop a sense of empowerment, and uh, they become better citizens. They become more engaged in their communities because they discover their power and just how much power they actually have, and, and that's what keeps people like you and I so passionate about this business. Power to control their own destiny. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. Well, you know, we only have another minute, so do you have any final comment? Any final comment? I, I guess I just want to validate that, you know, there are people, for people who want to do this, there are people like me out there to help you. I'm a co-founder of an organization called the Democracy at Work Network. We are at dawn.coop. You can reach me at jim.johnson at dawn.coop. And we are an organization of experienced worker owners people who come from worker cooperatives, having been worker owners, and who have uh, trained ourselves and schooled ourselves to deliver assistance to people who want to start worker cooperatives or convert traditional businesses to worker cooperatives or existing worker cooperatives who want to get stronger. Jim? We are, and that's what we do. we got to go, and I thank you so very much for your passion and for the knowledge that you're sharing with us. Thanks for being on. Likewise, Vernon. Thank you. We'll see everybody else next Thursday. Have a great weekend. 1450 WOL.